0: Welcome to the Trade Knowledge Matters podcast, our regular podcast on all things connected to international trade. Well, in today's edition, we'd like to look at the idea of economic security and what it means for international trade. Now, economic security is an idea that has become fashionable in recent times, and like all fashionable ideas, it's not easy to pin down exactly what it means. One way to do this is to look at the EU's economic security strategy that was launched last June. And if we do that, we can see that, in fact, economic security is an umbrella expression that covers a variety of different policy objectives. One of these might be to maintain competitiveness and stimulate innovation in sectors that are seen as strategic because they generate high value added and because they might have dual economic and military functions. Another concern is resilience in value chains in the sense of reducing exposure to exogenous shocks or to uh, respond to coercive behavior by geopolitical rivals that might control critical inputs or raw material. Other concerns include cybersecurity and the protection of critical infrastructure and avoiding the leakage of technology and skills to economic and geopolitical rivals. Concerns around economic security have led to the use of a wide range of trade policy measures. If you look at the EU's recent announcement of the last few weeks, we see measures such as stricter investment screening rules, cross-border EU approach to export controls, working towards restricting outbound uh, investment in critical sectors, or scaling up dual use and advanced technology research. A lot of these measures are in the continuity of ideas already explored under the umbrella of strategic autonomy by the European Union. And this includes the CHIPS Act, the anti coercion instrument, the dual use regulation, or the foreign subsidies regulation. And more recently, the EU's Net Zero Industry Act aims to promote the EU's control over the development of clean technology. The EU is, of course, not alone in taking these measures. The US has long screened foreign investment and in 2020 strengthen these controls via the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act firmer. Japan has also upgraded its own security policy, particularly in relation to critical raw materials, as well as biotechnology, quantum computing, and low-carbon technologies. There's therefore a general global trend towards selective intervention and a greater fragmentation in trade and investment relationships. And this has profound implications for the way in which trade is conducted and the way in which trade is governed. And in order to shed some light on these issues, I'm joined by two distinguished speakers to this podcast. First is Dr. Matthias Bauer, who is the Director at the European Centre for International Political Economy or ESI. Matthias works on EU and global trade policy, with a focus on digital and technology policymaking. He's the author of several studies, economic impact assessments, and policy briefs in the fields of international trade, digital markets, regulation of data, innovation, and intellectual property rights. Coming back to this podcast, because she's spoken before, is Dr. Deborah L., who is the head of trade policy at the Hinrich Foundation in Singapore. She previously served as the executive director and founder of the Asian Trade Center. She's a highly accomplished trade professional with extensive experience in international economics and is globally recognized as a thought leader and advocate for economic development and trade, which has worked with both companies and governments to promote better economic policies and negotiate improved trade agreements. Matthias and Deborah, it's a pleasure to have you and welcome to this program. with you, Matthias. So the EU's policy positioning on economic security and resilience places heavy emphasis on innovation and the development of various technologies it sees as critical. That the EU's uh, scorecard in these technologies and in innovation and tech generally is pretty mixed. It lags behind the US and also China in terms of R&D as a proportion of GDP. Are the EU's policy settings and its economic security package and strategic autonomy really the right ones to change this uh this basic picture yeah
1: thank you omar thanks for this kind introduction i'm also happy to to be here the i think short answer to your question my short answer to your question would be no the economic security strategy is an initiative that is basically seeking for more regulation, uh, more interference in markets uh, domestically in the EU, but also more interference in uh, trade and investment. And the issue that we have in the EU is that there's too much regulation and too much legal fragmentation already. So adding more friction in the wheels of trade, more the interviews of trade, more the interviews of investment uh, will very likely not uh, spur innovation and corporations' efforts to increase their own international competitiveness. You mentioned the, uh, I think, R&D scoreboard uh, data. Uh, that's, um, it's a data set uh, annually presented by the European Commission. And when you look into uh, the data, which comprise, I think, the 2,500 most research intensive leading companies globally, you realize that the EU's share is going down for quite some time now, driven by two jurisdictions, uh, China becoming more knowledgeable, more able to compete in knowledge and technology intensive industries, but also the United States, which is a very uh, dynamic economy if you take CT technologies uh, hardware equipment but also software and computer services you find around 40 companies in this scoreboard um, that are still amongst the let's say 2500 leading companies globally while you have 270 companies from the united states uh, that have a u.s headquarter a u.s passport if you like uh, but also uh, heavily trade and invest at the global stage. And uh, the relative proportion, it has changed. Uh, it uh, slightly increased in the US and it went dramatically down for the EU. And this is also a pattern that we find for our industries like uh, biotechnology, pharmaceutical sector, uh, manufacturing in general, and a vast amount of services sectors. We have a, a structural regulatory challenge to overcome in the EU and that is that our national markets, national member state economies are very tightly regulated. We have a single market nominally, which is largely about uh, having zero tariffs uh, for goods and services traded between uh, EU economies. And we have the principle of mutual recognition for goods, so when you you, uh, produce a car, in Germany, you can sell it in Germany, you can automatically sell it in another EU member state. And this is true for most products. But it's not true for services. Uh, most services are regulated at the, a at the national level. And in addition to that, we have a vast amount of regulatory fragmentation in horizontal policies like labor market policies, tax policies, and so on and so forth. Recognizing that the US single market, if you want to put it that way, is not perfect but given that we only have more or less one let's say two languages in the us compared to 24 languages in the eu the eu is facing a rarer uh severe structural problem and i don't see much efforts for uniform rules in in all of these issues and sectors that i mentioned in the eu uh, i rather see uh political ambitions to increase uh, the number of regulation, also the the types of regulation that we see, including those mentioned
0: broadly in the uh, EU's economic security strategy. Thank you for that. So, um, Deborah, you heard that Matthias said that there's some fundamental structural problems in the EU and that the economic security uh, approach is not really addressing those concerns but even aggravate them. Uh, you are based in one of the most dynamic areas in the world for trade and investment. Would you with that view and other perspectives that you can offer from from your vantage point.
2: Well I think you have identified a key challenge that we all face, um, which is the growing intertwining of economic issues with security issues. I mean, that's always been there, but it has, you know, waxed and waned over over my lifetime certainly and potentially over the lifetime of some of your listeners. Right now, of course, the the connection between economic security and ec- and and security I would say at an all-time high at least in recent memory. And that has driven some interesting outcomes even across Asia, where many of the governments here have limited experience with navigating this sort of challenge because the last times that this took place many of these economies in the region and certainly many of the governments in the region were in, were either very young or in a quite different economic space. So they were less entwined in general with the global economic system. It mattered less to them who was the superpowers fighting for what over what. Now suddenly it matters a lot more. And so we find across this region, including in many of the least developed countries in Asia, a new focus on what is this economic security argument What does it mean? How will it be implemented? What are the challenges that it will present to our existence, or at least our existing way of life and the way in which we've organized our economies? And what are the opportunities that we have for adjusting um, in that new contested space? Now, the early thoughts on this, um, which really became acute during the U.S.-China trade war under U.S. President Donald Trump, was that much of Asia would benefit from having this tension, this rising tension. And the reason that they would benefit is that under rising tension, it is desirable to have an alternative strategy, to have an alternative location for manufacturing especially, but also to be searching for new suppliers, new manufacturing locations, new customers, and that Asia as a whole was really ripe to take advantage of this renewed opportunity for firms looking for new investment opportunities, new places to do business. However, I think there's a bit of a of a realization dawning on some in Asia that while there are opportunities to be sure, and there have been significant shifts in some supply chains, that these also comes with some growing risks. And so I would point as an example to Vietnam where Vietnam's early response to a U.S.-China trade war was to say, fantastic, happily take your investment dollars, happily invest and manufacture all kinds of things. Increasingly, I think Vietnam is concerned because, among other things, the trade deficit, which is a key metric, if we were to have a Trump 2.0 administration coming soon, it's a key metric that they look at. And so Vietnam might go from what they saw as an opportunity to a potential challenge and i think that is replicated across much of this region and globally and and then the le- the last thing i would sort of say to tie my remarks to what matthias said is that again early on in this discussion it was largely around us china but we have now got the expansion of this issue of economic security to be much broader particularly with european union activities as well. And so if you are going to come to a world where economic security considerations are prominent or are prominent across key sectors, you know what does that mean for other parts of the world that are not the European Union, that are not the United States, and that are not China? And I think that is the question that many, certainly many political and economic leaders, businesses are looking at right now. Where do we go from here?
0: Thank you. And just to expand on that point, I suppose you, you mentioned that, that the tariffs war between the U.S. and China in position by, by the U.S. on unilateral tariffs on China. We moved from a very sort of focused set of policy interventions around tariffs to a more broader concept of de-risking, uh, which, as you said, originally started with respect to China, but now has become more generalized. I mean, in that more expansive world of de-risking, which yeah, involves uh, multiple instruments, but also the consideration of multiple different types of objectives. I mean, how do countries uh, in, uh, in the Asian region, for example, and uh, Matthias can talk about, you, how do countries navigate that more uh, both fragmented world but shifting world where but risks by definition are evolving all the time?
2: I think the early idea was, you know, you could do sort of dual use if you will so you could potentially have a factory that produces widgets and the widget factory could have uh, you know some kind of either literal wall or at least a sort of theoretical wall you know duct tape between two halves of the factory and on one side it manufactures goods for example destined for the united states and on the other side it manufactures goods destined for china let's say that was, I think, an early assumption about how you would manage this de-risking, hence no risk, right? We have half of the factory does one thing and half of the factory does a different thing, and then we, we we declare ourselves, you know, fully independent and able to work with both sides. I think though this is getting a bit more complicated and firms are trying to figure out, well, what does that actually mean for us? You know, if we are not allowed first of all, are we not allowed to manufacture things? that are going to the US and to China. And if we're not allowed to manufacture for both markets, what are we not allowed to manufacture? If we are allowed to manufacture for how long and under what processes and procedures and how quickly might these rules change so that suddenly things that were viable on a Monday are no longer viable on a Tuesday. And I think that is a new set of concerns for businesses, for sure, but also for governments that have tried to navigate between these sort of shifting policy objectives. And I'm not sure that anyone really knows where the lines are going to be drawn, how well they'll be drawn, how quickly they'll be drawn, and how quickly they might move, even once they're, you know, put down. Uh, And I think that is the part that is making everyone nervous. And again, it's not just an Asian experience, but it's acute here in Asia, because if you think about this region, China is the number one importer and exporter of record, especially in goods, for every single market in Asia. Yet, the United States is often the largest investor in the region. And the United States also, of course, buys an awful lot of goods from the United States, but also is a recipient of services from this region into the US and out from the US. And so I think it's very difficult to say where your loyalty, if you were, uh, lies for many of these companies, and also where your businesses lie on this sort of divide if you are government in the region. And so I think we are in a period of prolonged and heightened anxiety. Over what that future will look like, with very little clarity about where we're headed, and so again, pockets of opportunity. Let me not be too too bleak about this. I think there are certainly pockets of opportunity. I think Asia is well positioned to come out fairly intact and in, even growing in some areas. But there's definitely more risks than I think people would have imagined a decade ago.
0: And Matthias is building on some of those ideas, so. Uh, Deborah mentioned what de-risking looked like in, in Asia. From a European perspective, it, it seems that de-risking uh, it really turns a lot around yeah, localization, in part keeping production or uh, increasing the local share of production, but also then exercising control over the value chain to the extent the extent how are European businesses and European industries placed to manage some of these competing effects or conflicting effects of um, economic security and territoriality okay that's a well it's a complex question
1: but let me try to answer it um focusing a little bit on um, economic security and de-risking and what we so far seen in the eu in terms of political initiatives uh, having been taken Uh, so i would first of all say that um governments should not be involved now there is of course An issue with economic coercion, an issue that became very um, vivid uh, after um, Russia invaded Ukraine and Europe was being cut off from um, uh, Russian gas. Uh, There might be a few more areas uh, where uh, similar patterns arise, similar risks arise, especially in the commodity industry, and I think this is an area where governments could engage and impose certain rules and risk mitigating mechanisms on industry. Uh, and we've seen this with the Critical Raw Materials Act uh, recently. Apart from this, we have not seen much really from the EU or national governments in terms of telling companies how they should manage their rally change to de-risk, You know, stop investing in China. On the contrary. Many companies from the EU actually expanded their investments in, in China. Um, at the same time, however, many companies already decided to increase supply chain diversification, actually, they rested from, from China, started investing in other regions, in Asia, in Latin America, uh, but also largely in places. Uh, where there's still uh, where there's still good opportunities and uh, good conditions for investment in Europe, especially in Central and and Eastern uh, European countries. Now we have another policy in the making, and I think this is in a way addressing what you raised uh, about cybersecurity policies in Europe Omar. And this is, for example, the European Union cybersecurity certification regime for cloud services. It's a very complicated term, but the general idea is that um, in the EU member states and their responsible authorities can decide what what's a risky sector or ris- risky entity, and for these risky sectors or entity, cloud services providers to serve these clients. So you can. Imagine that uh, for a public for public uh, sector like defense, this might make sense, and there are huge political sensitivities, and there's a demand for uh, keeping information and data safe. Uh, but there's a strong appetite to make such policies mandatory across the economy, especially if we follow what's what, what's been um, coming from part of the French government recently. So, there is a strong appetite for very substantial kind of protectionism for the cloud services or ICT in general, ICT sector in general, coming from France, uh, which other governments fortunately do not share. Um, And um, if a policy like this would really materialize, then the EU would be cut off from 90% of uh, cloud services providers that currently um, serve the European market uh, and we are talking about the most innovative companies providing ICT services that in the past are known to have contributed substantially to productivity growth and also innovation through adoption of innovation in the EU and then would of course have massive implications for the EU's longer-term path of productivity and international competitiveness. So in, in
0: now, subsidies, you know, especially set in contrast with some of the measures we've just talked about, are, are preferable to other forms of restrictions, such as tariffs, because subsidies can actually enhance welfare if they're correct for market failures. Uh, the issue, though, is subsidies have inevitably a spillover effect on trade and can distort trade. Um, so I was wondering, from first an Asian perspective and the EU perspective, how does one measure? How does one manage rather the the increasing recourse to subsidies globally? Uh, yeah, uh, what what are the appropriate policy responses, including you know ways in which some of the, the positive spillover effects of subsidies through innovation R and D uh, can be harnessed? Uh, Deborah, I'd start with you from an Asian perspective.
2: I think this is one of those questions in which we have split opinions across Asia. In part, it depends on whether or not you're in a position to be able to subsidize your own market. And if you're not, then you may have a very different view than if you could subsidize markets. So that's the first dividing line. The second dividing line is subsidies in which kinds of sectors. So if we said, okay, we're worried about, as an example, subsidies in steel or shipbuilding or even semiconductors i would say a lot of the rest of a a lot of asia would say that's not an area we're in that's not an area we're likely to be in and so i suppose if, if you really got people to be honest they would say have a party and subsidize the heck out of it because at the end of the day what do we get we get cheap steel cheaper boats cheaper subs, you know semiconductors whatever it happens to be so i think there's going to be a real split not that anyone that i've ever heard has said you know keep subsidizing but you know the net result is that you get cheaper stuff elsewhere and if you're not competitive in the sector and you're not worried about it then you're less fussed about having subsidies somewhere else so i think we have real split views on subsidies in general um i think it's clear that you know whatever happens, we could certainly use some consistent rules to govern acceptable and unacceptable subsidies. I think where we may have more common interests in Asia on the subsidy issue is one that's not talked about very often on food. So increasingly in Asia, there's a lot of growing worries uh, about food security and about the ways in which subsidies or the lack thereof, or additional subsidies can distort food markets. So I think that is more salient to an awful lot of Asian governments than a discussion about, say, steel subsidies, because they're just we just don't have as many participants in steel that would be making steel that would be that would be worried about it. You know, so I think it, it's going to depend. The answer to subsidies depends on where you are and whether you're in a position to subsidize and whether or not that subsidy affects markets that you have. Then in most cases. Other than food, the answer seems to be not so much for most of the region. So that's left them, I think they're not on the sidelines in this subsidy debate, but they're certainly not as involved as they would be if it were more possible to subsidize themselves or if they had different kinds of sectors.
0: Matisse, from a more European perspective. Yeah, so
1: uh, I think managing subsidies on managing the recourse of subsidies in a way that we see less subsidization globally in the future is close to impossible. Ama um, you mentioned that subsidies can be more efficient than tariffs to tackle certain market failures. And I think that's true in some cases. Uh, the theory behind this uh, may be true under certain assumptions, but the problem is that uh, governments uh, have very Uh, different uh, interpretations when they look at what what is a market failure. So it can be anything these days. Uh, And this is, of course, contradictory to what we know from economic textbook theory. Um, When you look at data, I think uh, Global Trade Alert uh, published a report a couple of months ago saying that since 2008, Um, subsidies accounted for about 50% of all trade-distortive measures that we've seen rising globally. Um, And the problem with subsidies is that they very often do not help, well, almost always do not help to encourage meaningful innovation to lead to innovation that uh, at the end of the day will be Uh, commercialized uh, either nationally or uh, globally in a successful way. Uh, What you typically do is you shield um, domestic industry incumbents small and large from being exposed to competition. It is, as Deborah mentioned, uh, not um, just when you look at the sizes of countries. So in the EU, we have a debate about where subsidies are going into and smaller EU member states like the Baltic countries, but also Scandinavian countries, they tend to oppose subsidies uh, at the EU level, but also national subsidies, which is why we've had state at rules, which turned out to be very effective uh, for a very long period in the EU in the first place. And we already see it from the recent subsidy packages that were created at an EU level for uh, ICT, uh, but also the semiconductor industry, those countries who benefit most are uh, France and uh, Germany. But let's say companies that benefit most are located in France and Germany. And then you need to ask yourself the question, uh, is this... um, contributing to uh, political, political cohesion, to political cooperation among the member states, is it effective with regard to the policy objectives? I want to give you just one more example. Um, the EU just, uh, well, I think it's not just, it was in 2021, if I remember correctly, it released a subsidy package of 1.2 billion euro for uh, the development of cloud and edge computing in the EU, The package uh, intended to spend over the period of eight years, we're talking about 1.2 billion euros. And if you compare that to the annual investment of Amazon Web Services in 2021 alone, we are standing at 4%. So the numbers, they are out of any reasonable proportion when it comes to private sector investment with the right incentives, the commercial incentives behind it, and public money that is sprinkled over, you know, a few research associate organizations or a few companies that, uh, on paper, meet the conditions to uh, to be the potentially next uh, big uh, cloud services and edge computing providers in the EU. So there are many issues, and I think the big issue, the big problem is that um, commercial interests will always have Uh, We'll always be close to to countries' capitals and ask for support. Uh, Governments are eager to give it away. Uh, We've seen a huge subsidy spiral over the past decade, especially um, after the uh, global financial and government debt crisis, with another wave uh, coming in after or during and after COVID. And I'm afraid this is not going to go away at any time soon. And there's no WTO rule in place uh, combating this trend. Um, I can I can imagine that a few OECD countries led by the U.S., potentially led by some EU countries, uh, agree on a new initiative to combat the, the global uh, waste and subsidies when it has not even worked between the EU and the U.S. and the Trade and Technology Council. So I'm very pessimistic with regards to managing this recourse to subsidies in an effective way so that we see less subsidization and more, let's say, undistorted competition in the future.
0: Uh, Thank you. And um, you mentioned that in relation to subsidies, authorities can be quite creative in finding market failures to which respond. One could say a similar thing about economic security in the sense that because it's a casual expression we could reformulate a number, number of different things as economic security concerns. Uh to take one example, you the know, climate change mitigation subsidies are designed off sensitive to correct market that is there, but increasingly they're also being catched in terms of economic security. Uh, to take one example, another example. So the, the European Commission's anti-subsidy probe into electrical vehicles and um, there was a, a briefing note from members of the European Parliament that said basically that reliance on Chinese imports of uh, electrical vehicles ran a counter to the EU's economic security strategy. It's not entirely clear how, but that was the affirmation. Now, at the same time, putting countervailing duties on imports of electrical vehicles will make it more costly and less easy to reach net zero targets. So there are all these trade-offs that do actually exist the moment you impose economic security as a guiding concern of of policy. Just building on some of your comments, Matthias, I mean, what are some of the ways in which these trade-offs can be managed? Assuming that, as as you you both seem to have said, that economic security is here to stay as a concern, how do you manage some of these trade-offs and minimize some of the costs that come from uh, a sort of blanket approach to imposing economic security? On policy? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, there's uh, no, different voices popping up in my, my mind now. It's so complicated, and I often feel that uh, one left head in government does not really know what the other left hand is doing. But we all know that's not the case. They often know very well what the other hand is doing. So in the EU, we have this strange situation that. Uh, Brussels, but also member state capitals, continue to hand out subsidies. At the same time, we are seeing over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, a rising number of counterweighting duty and anti-dumping investigations. Uh, and The question is, is this a consistent, logically consistent uh, way to, to policy I would I would be inclined to say no. And speaking against the background of this overall economic security uh, paradigm, I am inclined to argue in favor of more international cooperation and taking the EU perspective that should ideally include countries that are like-minded in the sense that they share broadly share common uh, values, commitments to, let's say, liberal democratic order, uh, but also generally speaking, have a tradition of, of uh, embracing the principle of free trade and unhampered uh, investment. Um, and to think about what the, what what they could do together to contain in um, increasing rise of subsidies across the world. The public in these countries is sharing common interests. You know, cybersecurity, I think this is... It's not a a disputed issue to increase cybersecurity for for citizens and corporations to uh, mitigate the risk of um, heavily disrupted supply chains or critical goods, including, of course, raw materials. I think there's a huge common denominator uh, across the publics and the political regimes in these countries, why not working together uh the problem is that i'd say i'd say that uh there are still too many national priorities different structure of of these industries that mama you mentioned the netherlands um escaping eu export control rules i mean that's for obvious reason because there is uh, one very big successful company uh producing semiconductor equipment uh, and is very successful in selling this equipment to to China. And we we see these interests in all of these countries or OECD countries, to put it that way. Uh, but if there is a strong political will, I think you can still come together and agree on on good rules for good society in, in, in certain terms. Um, in the past we've seen a strong OECD impetus when it comes to the agenda of the WTO. I think that, in a way, disappeared 20, 30 years ago. But I think it's time to revive uh, the OECD, but that requires a lot of political leadership. And I don't see where this is uh, coming from, in the near-term future, with the I mentioned it's Trump in the making in the U.S., and uh, some uncertainties about the Next European Commission uh, president and the composition of the European Parliament, which I would assume, given that we see many popular uh, right wing populist movements, left wing populist movements gaining strength, I think they are not very much open to defend a rules based order that is um, conducive to open markets and trade and investment across borders. So uh, it's a, a rather pessimistic out
0: there. is pessimism also the the sense in, in asia where uh, i suppose as to build on matthias price there are also a variety of different perspectives on, on what economic security means and how these trade offs with other policy objectives including net zero initiatives decarbonization play out
2: i think in general you just hear fewer discussions about economic security i mean it just it just doesn't it doesn't rise it's not that it's not there but it doesn't it certainly doesn't seem to be keeping politicians and trade negotiators up at night, or at least if it is, it's in a pretty, pretty narrow areas. And I think that's a difference between Europe, the US and, and potentially China, although even in China, I mean, there's only certain folks who are worried about this and others who I think are just getting on with the business of doing business. So I think that's a bit of a difference. If I could discuss t- two things that have come to me as, I, as we've been listening to this discussion today, one has to do with de-risking, because that was your earlier question, are we de-risking? And I'm not convinced that we're actually de-risking. I think in some ways we've made things much more risky, which is if you diversify your supply chains in, that, in an effort to limit the risk, you may actually increase the fragility of these supply chains. So I worry a lot about people who are saying to me, well, you know, we've got all these companies who are moving out of China, they're moving into a place like Vietnam, they're shipping more from Vietnam into the United States you know, I worry that, well, that's an extra stop in a supply chain. And so the more links you have in a chain, the more fragile it can actually be. So I'm not convinced that we're getting the de-risking outcome that we originally intended to have. And many of these conversations that I see in economic security miss the point, which is you also have to think about the reality on the ground. I mean, it's one thing for a government to sort of wave its magic wand and say, wouldn't it be great if we could de-risk X or Y? But the reality is, you may actually have made things worse and, and an area just to give you a sense of an area where I think this is important is, is critical health. So we talk a lot about semiconductors and critical minerals and so forth. But if we just think for a second about what does this look like for critical health technologies or critical health, pharmaceutical products and diagnostics of all kinds and so forth, if you say, well, for security purposes, Um, we need to make sure that we have sufficient supplies of materials at all times. First of all, I would say, did you put or would you have put face masks on that list in 2018? My guess is no. You would not have said that's a critical supply, but suddenly it became a very critical supply. Would you put ventilators? Maybe, maybe not. But let's imagine for the sake of argument, you say, let's put ventilators on a list of critical supplies. We must have ventilators. Fantastic. Who is going to buy them? who's going to pay for them who's going to store them they don't last forever so who's going to maintain them because they need to be i don't know much about ventilators but i understand that they need to be you know parts have to be replaced regularly and you know they have to be cleaned very carefully and you can't just sort of stick them in a container somewhere shut the door and then 5 years later open it up and expect it to work well so where where is the the cost going to come from you know the firms themselves It's not that they're stupid. The firms are thinking about like, where am I gonna make face masks and ventilators? And they've created a supply chain for the most part that delivers what you need more or less when you need it. You know, obviously in COVID, there was a shock and a disruption at the outset, but at the end of the day, people ultimately got face masks and they did get ventilators. And so, you know, I I do worry that government stampede towards naming everything as a security problem is creating more problems than it may actually be solving, and it would be great if nothing else, if governments did a better job of listening to companies on some of these issues, so that you know that the companies could say, you know, it's, just to stick with health for a minute, if we make a list of what we think are critical health supplies, does that even make sense? can you make the thing that we're asking you to make in the way that we're asking you to make it? And in many cases, the companies will say, no, actually, we, we, we have no capacity to do that. And if we were to make the capacity to do that, the investment needed would be so far above what you are offering us in subsidies, for example, that it can't be done. And so, you know, I think some more interactions around these questions of security are critical or we are likely to get, particularly bad outcomes actually far more fragile far less robust supply chains because firms will be in a scramble to re- to to manage rules that can't be managed and you know what what would you do then if you're a firm and you're being asked to do things which are frankly uncompetitive what do you do you stop doing it altogether you do something else which means maybe in the next crisis there are no face masks or there are no ventilators because the rules require you to invest so much That no shareholder is ever going to pay or agree to let the company pay that kind of money for a ventilator. I mean, so I think this is a real challenge that we need to think a lot harder about as we stampede off this economic security cliff.
0: And that seems to be um, a useful point to come to our last question. So the the reason economic security is uh, such a powerful concept is that it has a high degree of emotional and political resonance which is not a new thing. This is why anti-dumping is sometimes you know, described as trade defense the moment you start talking about security uh, defense. Uh, you know, you're, you're in, in an emotional territory which allows politicians to sell the concept broadly, Yeah, as I said, cover a multitude of policy sins. Um, as you mentioned, you know, it could make things far worse. Now, economists have long been uh, alerting policymakers to these uh, unintended consequences and counterproductive aspects of such policies, that it's very difficult to get cut through uh, purely based on analysis. I mean, how can economists go beyond the numbers to shape the narrative that will bring some of these counterproductive or perverse consequences to, to light? Start with you, Deborah, and then convince Matthias.
2: Well, if we'd cracked the code, then we wouldn't need this podcast, I would say. So I don't know that we've cracked this particular conundrum. But, I, I you know, I, what I try to do is, is use practical examples. So here's one in my health sector. At the beginning of COVID-19, the Asian Development Bank decided to track the supply chains in four critical technologies, face masks, ventilators, syringes, and PPE, I think. The amount of work that the ADB did was... Astonishing. I mean, absolutely jaw-dropping. From Think about a face mask first. From the raw materials, the fibers, through to the elastic bands and the nose bridge, whatever, to the production of the thing, to the distribution. They had warehouses and distribution sites. They had retail establishments. They had it for every one of the ADB com- countries, as, I, as far as I can recall. So the amount of work, and it was by company. So it was like, you know, company AAA had this kind of raw material in this quantity, in this location to be sent to that location. And then you slip to the next slide and you could see when you put that raw material together and you started to make a face mask, here's what you had. So, I mean, the amount of work was just amazing. This is the, what it looks like when you make a, a mapping exercise of critical supplies. That's what it looks like. That's what you have to have. Here's the problem. The minute that you publish this, you hit publish on that wonderful set of, of uh, spreadsheets, everything in there is out of date. Everything in there is out of date because at where were we? In COVID-19, everyone needed a face mask. Many materials couldn't get across borders, so companies that had been in that sector said, forget it, we can't do it. Companies that had never been in that sector suddenly said, hey, here's a business opportunity, they moved into the sector. And so every single cell, I suspect, in that spreadsheet was shot to hell, like in the opening two days of publishing this incredible amount of work. And so I think this is the challenge that I keep trying to make graphically and publicly to uh, policymakers in particular. You want a you list of critical supplies. I get why you want that, it makes a lot of sense. But let's look at what the ADB did. How much money did it cost to do this? I have no idea, but it had to be crazy expensive. How many people sat around calling up and asking about you know elastic bits for face masks? I have no idea, but it had to be a lot. And at the end of it, it didn't actually make anybody have a face mask any faster as far as I can tell than they would have had otherwise. And so, you know, those examples to me help, at least, I, maybe I haven't turned anyone's opinion on this yet, but I'm working on it still. Don't do this. Don't decide that the thing to do is to make a list of critical supplies in health or other areas or critical food materials or you fill in the blank, what's your favorite thing? And then declare that for purposes of security we must have whatever this is and it must be made in a certain kind of way unless you are prepared to invest that kind of resources and do it literally minute by minute especially in times of crisis and i don't see that happening so please don't even go down this path because all you're going to do is fritter away an awful lot of money and an awful lot of time and effort by somebody i mean i don't know again i don't know who these staff members were at the adb but it had to be a thankless task if there ever was one so you know that kind of example, I think, helps explain why these things are intuitively attractive. Yes, of course, we should have a list, but practically very difficult to do.
0: It is. And what are your views on developing a compelling narrative that will highlight some of these costs in, the, in the European context?
1: Yeah. So it's it's difficult. It's it's challenging, but it's not hopeless. Uh, I've looked a lot on observing campaign movements against the EU-US negotiations for a free trade agreement, uh, TTIP, back then. And there's a lot of talk about trade barriers, but what was uh, ignored in this debate is uh, the notion of barriers to cooperation. And I think we should, should avoid talking about barriers to trade. We should rather talk about barriers to international cooperation, cooperation between ordinary citizens and not just, you know, diplomats or representatives of the military. Um, yeah, I would also take, a, let's say, a bird's eye perspective on this. Uh, Deborah, you know, uh, provided a very intuitive example um, from what's going on underground. I would say, first of all, um, governments should recognize the benefits of economic interdependence, uh, you know, cutting all ties with China, for example, would ignore the benefits of, Uh, economic interdependence, which can act as a deterrent against conflicts and promote peaceful regulations. So speaking about peace, that leads me to my second point about the relationship between open markets, open borders for trade and investment and and individual freedom. So when you look at the correlation between rankings in economic freedom, which is including free trade, Uh, and uh, uh, a a commitment to entrepreneurship, pre-entrepreneurship and individual freedoms, including the quality of governmental institutions and, let's say, the level of corruption, there is a strong positive relationship. Those countries who perform best in economic freedom tend to perform best in individual freedom as well. Um, And these countries tend to be small and open economies. On the contrary, when you look at the bottom end of the list, you see countries like China, but also countries like Saudi Arabia, um, Russia, uh, Venezuela, which perform worse when it comes to economic freedom and free trade, and the quality of governmental institutions and the level of corruption. So this is always important to tell, let's say, a less informed public. Another another point is to understand that... uh, the economic benefit of uh, an innovation, so the largest amount of the economic benefit of an innovation is not being created where the innovation is coming from, but where it is adopted. Uh, And this is important to understand as well. If people would understand it in a better way, we would probably have less of a discussion about erecting uh, barriers to trade and investment. And a final thought would be about internationalism there was a german economist uh, i think it's it's a post-war uh, economist who um, promoted the idea of auto liberalism and he once said that internationalism like charity it it starts at home and being a citizen of germany and the european union i can see that there's a lot of debate about how to revivate free trade and, and and competition especially when it comes to discussions little discussions about WTO, but what we see on the ground is basically the opposite: uh, no willingness to liberalize, no willingness to harmonize rules and regulations within the EU, and no willingness to uh, at least harmonize—not necessarily lower the level of, of of regulation, but harmonize regulations globally. And I would say that uh, this would be my general recommendation: you know, look at what you can do. Within your own jurisdiction, first, in order to make sure that you have a vivid economy, uh, embrace competition uh, rather than cronyism, and, and then uh, start being an example for others um, to follow. You.
0: Well, the idea of international trade as a form of international cooperation and making the most of international interdependencies seems to be a good way to end this uh, podcast. I'd like to thank you, Matthias and uh, Deborah, for your participation in this podcast. It's been a stimulating discussion. I'm sure there are many more ideas that we can explore, but I hope we've set the stage for uh, further research and conversations on this important topic. For all our listeners out there, thank you for joining in, and remember to rate, review, and share this podcast And we look forward to joining you again on our next episode. Thank you very much.